Coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. Going back to basics, simply eating good quality, single ingredient, wholesome, natural, animal-based foods, and then improving their activity, training hard, uh, and sleeping good. Like that's really and truly going to be the most bang for their proverbial buck. Um, so doing that, you know, is going to be key. And then honestly, just having a long game mentality and approach towards their diet and lifestyle. Like so many people try and do these quick, you know, cut schemes like, you know, 60 days for six pack abs and all this stuff. <laughs> yeah. um, and it's just it, not that you can't do it, but it's just not the the life that you'd want to live in the first place. Like I would like to, I would like to encourage people to figure out what they can maintain and be excited about adhering to every single day and then just make it a habit to, to double down on those every single day. And then if you do that over an, a long enough period of time, the benefits are just going to keep compounding. And I feel like that is the, the conversation, the mindset that we all need to adopt. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. All right, we got a special week this week. Myself and Robert Sykes of Keto Savage did a Keto Intermittent Fasting Masterclass. And we sat down and answered a lot of the common questions that come up around keto dieting and intermittent fasting. We dove into ways to get started and succeed in both areas. We also touched on the main benefits of the keto diet, foods to eat with quality fats, right times to fast, tips to overcome hunger, transitioning into the keto diet, and much, much more. So hopefully you enjoy this. This was a little bit different than just an interview, interview format, and um, hopefully you'll get some good value from it. So uh, I appreciate you listening and enjoy the masterclass. All right. Welcome to the Keto Intermittent Fasting Masterclass. And I have Keto Specialist Robert Sykes of KetoSavage.com and KetoBrick.com. Welcome to the welcome to the masterclass. Hey man, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thanks for coming on. I I wanted to find the best of the best, and I got them here. Uh, so my thoughts around this masterclass was to you know, find frequently asked questions that come up uh, from my clients and just from the internet uh, around fasting and around, uh, you know, the keto diet, because they seem to run hand in hand and in, for the most part, try to achieve the same goal. But I think there's just a lot of questions. And as you know, like what the keto diet ha was seven years ago <laughs> has sort of evolved and changed maybe in a lot of people's eyes, or maybe there's even more confusion around it. So that was part of the reason why. And the same thing with fasting, you know, it's like the, the more time things go, go by, like I, there's 80 different versions of, of it. And I thought we could just, um, bring it back to like, okay, you know, here are the basics, here are ways to get started and, um, just run them through a bunch of different scenarios that work. So, yeah, sounds great to me, man. I feel like, you know, ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting, uh, sometimes even extended fasting, they all kind of go hand in hand. So trying to figure out how it works for the individual is, is key. Yeah, no doubt. And there's definitely a self-experimentation. So anything we say, you know, take it with a grain of salt. This is stuff that we've done maybe on our own or with our clients and it works for them or for us. Uh, but you know, you, you, it's sort of, it is sort of a journey for every individuals to, to find what, what's like the best mesh that fits into their lifestyle. I totally agree. Totally agree. Okay, cool. So let's start, let's just start real basic. Um, What's your definition of a keto diet and ketosis? 
yeah. So I actually, this was kind of one of the topics of my presentation at KetoCon this past uh, week or two. I, I would separate the definition of ketosis and ketogenic diet as being two separate things. Um, ketosis is simply a metabolic state in which the body is burning fat and ketones for fuel as a result of there being a, uh, you know, deficit of carbohydrates and glucose. Um, and I would define the ketogenic diet as a diet that prioritizes the body's burning of fat and fuel, uh, while allowing for optimal performance. I feel like by not separating those two, a lot of people, uh, lead to confusion. For instance, if you were to believe that the you know, being in ketosis is simply the only prerequisite for following a ketogenic diet based off of my level of activity. I could eat a single apple a day and maintain a state of ketosis. I would be producing enough ketone bodies. I'd be burning through that little bit of glucose in that apple, but I would argue that an apple a day diet is not a really good representation of a ketogenic diet. Mm -hmm. uh, so I like to differentiate the two there. So for me, you know, ketosis is technically just 0.5 millimolar or higher on a you know ketone strip. Uh, but for me, a ketogenic diet is a diet that consists of, uh, you know, an, an optimal protein intake, a higher fat approach, very low to minimal carbohydrate so that your body is able to prioritize fat and ketones as the, the primary fuel source. Okay. No, I like it. Yeah. They're definitely, definitely, uh, agree with you. The fact that you want to differentiate the two. Now, if we're talking keto diet, do you think of it as almost ratios, you know, cause like, I know the sort of the clinical profile was like four to one where it'd be like, let's just say, for example, 400 grams of fat. Okay. Per day. And then you'd have like, let's just say 90 grams of protein, 10 grams of carbs. That was, that's four to one ratio for, you know, from fat to the other macros. Um, but now that was probably more of a clinical for perhaps kids and, uh, with, um, uh, uh, kids with like, seizures. Yeah. Yeah. yeah with, excuse me. I drew a blank seizures, but would you say there's, there's an optimal ratio that you look for or that you do with your clients? Yeah. So like if you Google the Webster's definition of ketogenic diet, it's going to say something like high fat, low to moderate protein, very minimal carbohydrate for children with epileptic seizures. But I feel like that's a very small subset of our demographic that's actually following a ketogenic diet. And because of that, uh, you've seen this massive influx of different versions of the ketogenic diet. You've got targeted keto, cyclical keto, high protein keto, high fat keto, protein sparing modified fast. I feel like that's kind of where all this confusion stems from. Um, so I would define it not so much as a strict macro distribution, you know, percentage parameters per se, um, but it, it can kind of be somewhere within a window. So like for me, I'm typically somewhere between uh, 65 and 80% of my calories coming from dietary fat. And depending on if I'm in a building phase or in a cutting phase, those, those are going to shift on a sliding scale slightly. Like there might be times where my protein's a bit higher, or my fat's a bit lower, um, where my fat's a bit higher. I mean, I'm always, the majority of my calories are always coming from dietary fat. I never really ever have an instance in which protein or certainly not carbohydrates exceeds the caloric load of my fat intake. Um, so that would be, a, I would think a pretty solid prerequisite for following a ketogenic diet. Uh, if you're having higher percentage of calories coming from carbs and then fat, you're probably not in ketosis. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I feel like that, that range, that window can be very, you know, different for everybody. Uh, but generally speaking, sometimes somewhere within about 65 and 85% of total calories coming from dietary fat and the optimal protein, uh, or ample protein rather to, uh, build and sustain, you know, lean tissue mass. Yeah. And we always hear about prioritizing protein and how important that is. Have you found that maybe since you've been doing the keto diet and obviously I know you do some natural bodybuilding, have you found that 
the protein part of things have, has actually sort of gone on the rise a little bit more while uh, sort of taking place of another macronutrient? Certainly as of late, that's been the, the talk of the town is, is just always prioritizing protein, eating more protein. But I feel like the pendulum has swung so far in that direction that it's, it's starting to have an adverse effect. You know, you know, rewind two, three years ago, everybody was talking about eating a whole bunch of dietary fat at the exclusion of protein. And that wasn't optimal. And now everybody's talking about eating a whole bunch of protein at the exclusion of dietary fat. And I don't think that's optimal either. I mean, I feel like the answer lies somewhere in the middle uh, because you think about it, you know, you, you might, you have to be eating enough calories at the onset. So like if you're only consuming a thousand calories, then yeah, you need to make sure you're eating a pretty good percentage of those calories from protein. But I don't recommend anybody only consume a thousand calories. Whereas if you're consuming like me, for instance, I'm at about 3000 calories a day as a maintenance. Uh, so I'm able to consume, you know, 150, 200 grams of protein and still maintain north of 70% of my calories coming from dietary fat while consuming that higher protein intake. So consuming ample calories in general is, is a really important prerequisite for making sure you get those proper macros, you know, distributed. Um, cause I feel like if you're not eating enough, then you're simply not going to perform at an optimal level, whether you've got a high protein ratio or a lower protein ratio and a higher fat intake, you have to make sure you're eating enough total calories. Okay. And one of the questions that comes up a lot about is what are like what are some of the main benefits of the keto diet? Yeah. So for, for me, it's been uh, as a natural bodybuilder, it's been kind of twofold. Like one, I look at it from a performance standpoint, my ability to preserve lean muscle tissue in the context of a caloric deficit has been significantly improved. Uh, it's typical to see a drop in lean mass and skeletal muscle tissue when you're dieting down for a show. <clears throat> and it's possible that I, I lose some muscle still within a ketogenic state, but I don't lose near as much muscle as I did with a traditional bro diet, high in carbohydrates, higher in protein and lower in fat. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that having a diet, higher dietary fat helps keep hormone levels at a stable you know, level or more so stable level, especially as a natural bodybuilder. Um, so that, that acts as a you know muscle preservative as well. Uh, so I'm able to train harder. I'm able to feel better. And that just makes a, a dietary, you know, cut for prep much more sustainable for me. But then as a business owner, I've noticed a significant boost in my just mental cognition and, and, you know, acuity with a ketogenic diet, as opposed to traditional diets. Um, I'm able to focus. I don't have a negative relationship with food any longer. I'm able to go longer between meals and my productivity is just enhanced significantly. Yeah. That that's probably the biggest thing for me. I, you know, we'll get into fasting. We'll talk a little bit about fasting, but that's part of the reason why I do enjoy doing, you know, some type of fasting and low carb. Um, like even today, I had, I had a little pre pre-workout meal, but very, I didn't need a lot. And, and I, my mental acuity, my energy was still there. Um, I didn't feel weight like it, normally if I would have a higher carb meal, I feel like it would weigh me down a little bit. Mm -hmm. I mainly had protein and fat and, and just found my energy levels just as good as they were almost in a fasted state. Um, what, what would you say the main components as far as eating, you know, cause you hear a lot about um, you know, higher fat, how are you getting that fat? And, um, and how do you track that? Yeah. So I track like when I'm in a prep, especially I'm tracking all my macros, I'm using an app called my macros plus, but any of them do about the same thing. So right. my fitness pal chronometer, uh, you know, any of those work as long as you're consistently using it. Um, but I'll try to get the vast majority of my calories from good quality animal sources, uh, you know, from a, ideally from a place where I know the sourcing. So, 
Um, I also hunt, so I'll, I'll have a bunch of wild game, wild venison in the freezer and that I can pull from, which is very lean. So to balance out that really lean meat, I'll have a bunch of added dietary fats. And for me, that oftentimes take the form of the keto brick, you know, like that, that's a 90 grams of dietary fat right there. The majority of which is coming from cacao butter, which is the greatest source of steric acid. There's been a whole bunch of benefits that has been associated with steric acid. So I typically use that as a solid dose of dietary fat, but I'll also get, you know, heavy cream in my coffee. I'll cook with olive oil or avocado oil. I'll put butter on my steaks. I'll use, you know, full fat dairy, things of that nature. Uh, so I get a pretty good source of, you know, dietary fat just from those, those means. And then I'll also opt for fattier cuts of meat if I'm not going the, the venison route. So, you know, like an 80, 20 ground beef or something of that nature. Okay. Very cool. And I'm just pulling up, uh, some of the fasting questions and we can touch on that. Um, here's one of them is, is there a right way to fast? <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I feel like this is a, this is a common question because people think there's like this perfect window. And my, and my answer to this would probably be say, no, I always say like the two rules of thumb to follow or don't eat right when you get up and don't, you don't have to eat, like maybe give yourself two to three hours before bed. So it doesn't, um, sort of get in the way of quality sleep and digestion. So, um, I mean, I would say most people in the U S eat probably from 8am to 8pm and they have this long 12 hour window. So one of the things I love about fasting is it's just a way to sort of create some structure in the day and give you a little bit of boundaries. Cause I feel like if you don't get boundaries, uh, when it comes to eating, whatever the diet is, whether it's, you know, a keto diet, vegetarian or pescatarian or, um, carnivore, then if you don't have these boundaries, then it's easy to do like late night eating is a big one, right? Like just snacking and eating sort of, um, like just eating out of boredom. Um, hmm. do you, do you have, um, uh, sort of thoughts on like the right way to, to fast or the right window? I'd say the, the, like from a very high level, I would say the right way is the most sustainable for the individual because it's going to be, you know, far different for a vast array of people. Uh, personally, I like to train fasted. Um, and there, there'll be times where I'll train in the afternoon, like today I'm training in the afternoon, for instance, but generally I like to train fasted in the morning hours. So I'll fast, uh, throughout that morning window. And then I'll typically break my fast with my first meal falling around somewhere between 11 and 2 PM. Um, and I'll, I'll have a heavy cream coffee in the morning before I train. So that's technically breaking my fast. It's kind of more of a fat fast protocol. And for my intentions of fasting, that works. Like I'm not trying to mitigate, you know, cancer cell growth or anything like that. I'm just trying to keep my blood sugar stable in the morning hour. So a little bit of heavy cream in my coffee is not really going to disrupt that. Um, and then I'll try to uh, pretty much just have two meals a day, one around that noon time frame, And then again, my final meal around five, six, seven o'clock in the in the evening. And that's pretty much my feeding window. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really worry so much about getting a pre-workout meal or a immediate post-workout meal. I kind of let it fall when it's convenient. Um, and honestly, when it comes to extended fasting, it really just depends on where you're at in your building and cutting phase. I see a lot of people trying to do extended fast while also trying to diet down. Uh, they're trying to ex- do extended fast primarily for weight loss, which I don't really ever recommend. Um, being in a deficit is quite a stressor on the body. Being in a fasted state is a stressor on the body. There's definitely a hormetic effect there, but if you're doing too many stressors all at once, you're not really going to get the most bang for your buck. So I only really do extended fasting when I'm in a caloric surplus in a building phase. And then I save, you know, the, the cutting phases just to do the intermittent fasting. Okay. Yeah. Your schedule is fairly similar to mine. Um, 
I mean, you see all these different types of schedules as far as fasting. And like you said, I, I agree. I think it's all about what are, what's sustainable for you? Like what fits in your lifestyle? If, if you really value eating dinner with your family, then don't skip, don't skip dinner. Like, uh, for the most part, I would say for most of my clients, dinner is the most important meal of the day for them with mm -hmm. their families and, or socially. So, you know, make that the forefront of it and, uh, maybe skip breakfast or even, you know, even skip lunch, whatever, whatever sort of works. I always say, uh, whatever your most busy time of the day is probably the time to skip it you know, and give yourself, uh, like for you, you know, you do, you work out in a fast state. You probably do a lot of work in the morning, like myself, my afternoon, it's, it's time. It's sort of, I wind down a little bit. I don't have to do like, you know, maybe any like thinking tasks that much in the afternoon, all that's done in the morning in a fasted state. So those are good sort of guidelines to follow. Um, because you'll see, you know, there's alternate day fasting. There's like a five, two, there's like, even like this circadian fasting. I think eating around, uh, around where the sun rises and falls. I mean, there, there could be some, some benefits around that, not eating too late at night. And, um, but either way, the one that's sustainable is the, the way to go. Here's another question. Um, what are some tips to overcome hunger? What do you think yeah. about that? Yeah. So when, I, when I'm in a fast, like we're talking about fasting, I'm assuming yeah. hunger while fasting. Yeah. Uh, so I'm a big fan of just making sure I'm getting enough electrolytes first and foremost and drinking in ample water. Um, and depending on how loose you want to be with your fasting rules, I'll oftentimes use like a bouillon cube, uh, which are really high in sodium, but I'll just simply melt one of those down in some boiling water. And it's almost like a broth. Uh, so you're drinking that it's kind of like a soup but there's not really any caloric load to it. Um, plus it's a really good way to get those minerals in. So I'll do like a bouillon cube. Um, but honestly, just, just making sure my water and electrolytes are dialed in and I'll just stay busy. Honestly, like if, if I'm doing an extended fast, I'll just make that I'll time it in a way such that I'm just, you know, heading down on a computer doing a whole bunch of client work or a whole bunch of, you know, business work, or I'm doing something in that regard. That way I can just stay focused. If you're just sitting around, you know, watching Netflix all day and you're fasting for an extended period of time, you're probably going to lean into those hunger cues a little bit more. Yeah, I think I, I agree. I think staying busy is like probably number one. Um, sparkling water, love using sparkling yeah. water with the carbonation, apple cider vinegar uh, with some water. Uh, some people don't like the taste of that. I think the first time I tried apple cider vinegar, I didn't realize you had to cut it with water. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that didn't go so well. Um, <laughs> great, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know what I was thinking, but that was a while ago. Um, and then yeah, coffee, unsweetened tea, good ways to go. Just black coffee. Um, I always say, you know, like you mentioned, you can add a little cream. I almost use those. You can use those almost as like for some people, almost like fasting training wheels a little bit. It's just a way to get your body acclimated to, to not having any food in it. Even if there is a little bit of calories and cream and things like that. Um, also this is question sort of goes hand in hand, which can help with this overcoming this hunger is, can I eat whatever I want on non, on non-fasting days or times? Yeah. So <laughs> I, it depends who you ask. I mean, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for sustainability. So I, tr I mean, I do a strict keto diet and I've been strict keto for seven plus years now. That's my, uh, that's my forte. So I would not deviate from that dietary protocol, even after an extended fast. Uh, some people that are, you know, following a standard American diet, for instance, but doing that alongside fasting, you know, their primary goal, if they're trying to lose weight is to, you know, moderate their consumption. So if they're eating, 
everything inside seven days a week and they do an extended fast for two of those days and then they go back to eating everything inside those remaining five days, they may put themselves in an energy deficit and be able to see some weight loss. Or they may even consume more in that, you know, once they break that fast. Because um, if you start to feel like you're deprived during that fasted period and you just start going off the rails once you reintroduce food, you're probably going to have a negative, you know, side effect from that. Um, so I always take a very measured approach when I'm doing extended fasting. Like I, I ease back into the food. I don't really introduce new foods. I keep the foods pretty consistent with what I'm typically consuming and know my body responds well to. And I honestly don't do extended fasting that often. Um, so that, that would probably be my, my best advice there. Yeah. I mean, I always say it's a lot easier during the fasting times. If you're eating clean during the, you know, that your feasting times. Um, totally. yeah. I mean, even if it's not strict keto, um, whole foods, right? Like, um, what would you say to someone? Is it tough for someone to do the keto diet if they're, um, either like a vegetarian, uh, a vegetarian or a vegan or, or even like a pescatarian? It's certainly, I mean, you certainly have to get more creative with your food choices. I mean, you can absolutely do it. I've worked with clients in the past that have been, you know, vegan and vegetarian. Um, it, you, you just have to find more options and make sure you're not in a you know, mineral deficient state or micronutrient deficient state, you may have to do a little bit more supplementation, but it's certainly doable. Um, and again, like, there's a lot of different reasons for people to go vegan. So I, I'd want to make sure that I'm understanding their, their main priority. Cause a lot of them are under the assumption that that's a healthier approach, which, you know, a lot of the research is suggesting that's not necessarily the case. If that's their only reason for being vegan, then I would just sit down and hop, have a conversation with them about, you know, what they feel is healthier and going that route and then see if I can instruct them otherwise. Um, but if they are, you know, doing it for religious reasons or whatever the case might be, you know, having a conversation about just simply giving them their options uh, and then figuring out how to work around that parameter so that they're still getting enough nutrients is key. Okay. And how long, this is a, another question that came up. Um, how long does it take to get into ketosis? Yeah. So you're technically producing ketones, you know, probably within 12 to 24 hours of the removal of carbohydrates and, and sugar. So you're producing ketones pretty quickly. You're probably going to register 0.5 millimolar on a ketone strip within, you know, 24, 48 hours, uh, maybe 72, depending on some people. Um, however, that doesn't really mean that you are yet fat adapted. There's a pretty stark contrast between producing ketones and being ketosis and actually being fat adapted, keto adapted. So once you primarily, you shift your body's primary fuel source from carbohydrates and glucose to fat and ketones, it takes a, you know, a while for your body to upregulate those metabolic pathways that you're efficiently using fat and ketones. I generally instruct people to do it for, you know, no less than a month, but really and truly it just keeps getting better the longer you're doing it, especially from a performance-based standpoint. Um, so like if you're trying to excel as an athlete, then I would suggest no less than about six months, then you'll really start to see your performance exceeding, or at least on par with what you were doing prior to adopting a ketogenic diet. But again, like it's kind of one of those things where the longer you do it, the more metabolic machinery your body, you know, puts in place to become efficient at using fat and ketones. Uh, so it just keeps getting better with time basically. Okay. And people are probably asking, how do you measure your ketone levels? This is so, yeah. You know. Yeah. So a lot of people will start with like a urine strip, which measures, uh, acetoacetate. 
And that works initially, but the problem is as you become more efficient at using those ketone bodies, your body becomes uh, less likely to excrete them through your urine. So after a while you'll start or you'll stop registering ketones on those urine strips. So then people will, will transition to blood tests, which measures beta hydroxybutyrate. Uh, and that's kind of the quote unquote gold standard for measuring ketone levels. Um, but again, depending on your level of adaptation, your body's likely going to become better at shuttling those ketone bodies, those beta hydroxybutyrate molecules into the cell, into the tissue. So they're not going to be sitting there circulating in the bloodstream to be measured uh, with a ketone meter. You'll still register, but you may actually see a decline in those over time. Um, also this all is, you know, depending on, you know, what your body composition is, what your level of dietary fat intake is, you know, if you're in a caloric surplus and a caloric deficit, all these can have a pretty profound effect on ketone levels, but, uh, blood testing is probably my preferred form. Then there's also the breathalyzer tests, uh, which are gaining in popularity and those are measuring acetone. Okay. Yeah. I've been, I've been measure, I measure it from time to time and I use, uh, like the keto mojo and, yeah. um, uh, that's sort of a good place to start. Here's um, another question is, what would you recommend someone going from the standard American diet who is looking to, to transition into the keto diet? What do those steps look like? Well, standard American diet is pretty much bottom of the barrel. So <laughs> you can do to, to get better than that, it's going to be progress. Uh, and the, the key is truly progress over perfection. So um, when, I, when I define you know what makes up a ketogenic diet, I, I look at just good quality, wholesome, single ingredient foods, uh, natural foods, animal-based foods. So if people transition their diet so that that's the majority of the foods they're consuming, um, then they're probably going to be doing themselves a world of service. And just something removing all of the, the ultra processed foods, higher in carbohydrates, higher in sugars, higher in liquid calories, um, you know, removing a lot of those and just simply focusing on good quality foods. And if they're transitioning from a standard American diet, they likely will experience a drop in, energy initially, but they're able to mitigate that pretty, pretty well by simply staying hydrated and consuming ample sodium and potassium. Uh, because when you do transition to a ketogenic diet from a standard American diet, you're going to flush out quite a bit of water in the initial phases. You're going to, your kidneys are going to flush out your minerals. Um, so you'll be deficient in your electrolyte balance. And that's going to cause a pretty apparent decline in just energy and how you feel in general. So replacing those electrolytes with uh, additional sodium potassium um, intake, in addition to just more water consumption is going to help mitigate those quote unquote keto flu like symptoms. Yeah. I was going to say, that's what a lot of people call like the keto flu. So you might starting out, you might feel some of these adverse effects. Is that just like maybe um, tiredness, headache, things like that? Yeah. I mean, I mean, you think about it, you're, you're, most people haven't been ketotic since they were born and they're drinking right. breast milk and, you know, colostrum. So um, most people haven't been in a ketogenic state for quite some time. And, uh, you know, when you shift your body's fuel source like that, there's going to be a little lag in your body being able to, to feel and perform at a higher level. So just kind of embracing that when it comes and just mitigating it as best you can with proper hydration, electrolytes, things of that nature. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. And, um, what would you say? Well, let's go to, let's go, let's go to a fasting question. Then we'll come back. So, uh, well, this one sort of goes hand in hand with what we've been talking about a little bit. Does intermittent fasting induce ketosis? Yeah. What? I mean, I yeah. mean <laughs> it does, it does yeah. depending on how long you do intermittent fast, depending on how many carbohydrates you're consuming. Once you're, once you deplete your, your stored liver glycogen and to some extent your muscle glycogen um 
and you're transitioning from a standard American diet, you're, you're going to start producing ketones pretty quickly. Um, but again, your body isn't necessarily, you know, efficient at using those ketones as fuel until you've given enough time to be, you know, upregulate those metabolic pathways to take advantage of that new fuel supply. Um, but yeah, I mean, intermittent fasting, extended fasting, certainly those are all going to increase uh, ketone production. Yeah. And I would just say, I would think, I think that like, at least for myself, who's been doing this, you know, intermittent fasting slash the keto diet for quite a while is, uh, Fasting is probably the most efficient and quickest way if I really want to just get like my ketone levels up. Um, but again, it depends on the individual and their background and what they've been doing. Uh, and, it, and what would you say to someone that uh, perhaps is um, discouraged? I think sometimes people want to like get to the end before they start. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, what would you say to someone like I, I always saying being patient is important. Um, what are some of maybe the mistakes that people make, um, when they're starting out on uh, trying to maybe get, get into the keto diet and into fasting? Honestly, I mean, if they go on, if they don't have very much knowledge and they're going onto the internet now, there's just so much, so much information out there, much of which conflicts itself. So, uh, it can be a very confusing time, but I think just honestly going back to basics, simply eating good quality, single ingredient, wholesome, natural animal-based foods, and then improving their activity, training hard, uh, and sleeping good, like that's really and truly going to be the most bang for their proverbial buck. Um, so doing that, you know, it's going to be key. And then honestly, just having a long game mentality and approach towards their diet and lifestyle. Like so many people try and do these quick, you know, cut schemes, like, you know, 60 days for six pack abs and all this <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Um, and it's just it, not that you can't do it, but it's just not the the life that you'd want to live in the first place. Like I would like to, I would like to encourage people to figure out what they can maintain and be excited about adhering to every single day and then just make it a habit to, to double down on those every single day. And then if you do that over an, a long enough period of time, the benefits are just going to keep compounding. And I feel like that is the, the conversation and the mindset that we all need to adopt. Yeah. I love that. I think, I think, yeah, like you said, there's a lot, there could be a lot of confusion out there. That's the one thing I like about fasting in the sense is this, the simplicity of it and the flexibility of it really doesn't cost anything. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and, uh, and yeah, eating just whole foods, what would you say as far as, and, and I have sort of a thought on this for fasting is, um, a good way to start. Actually, this, this is a common question that comes up from clients is should I get into the keto diet first or fasting first, or which comes, should I do both together? And what would, what would you say on that? I mean, I feel like they kind of go hand in hand. It's like a match made in heaven. So like fat digests and is absorbed much more slowly than carbohydrates. So if you switch over to a ketogenic diet and you ramp up your dietary fat intake, which I do encourage people to do, uh, if they're coming from a diet lower in fat, for sure, then they're going to have the, all the satiating effect of that higher fat intake. Ideally, they're, they're consuming ample protein from animal-based sources. That also takes a little bit more time to absorb and be assimilated by the body. So they should see an upregulation in satiety. Couple that with the fact that by removing the carbohydrates and sugars, they're going to have less volatile blood sugar and insulin. So that's going to decrease their cravings throughout the day and their hunger cues throughout the day. Then it just kind of goes hand in hand. They're probably not going to be consuming as frequently, which boom, you're in an intermittent fasting state right there. So, so kind of doing them in tandem usually works well for most. Yeah, I, I agree. And, um, this was a question that came up, um, on the wire here. What fruit can you eat on keto? 
Yeah. So <laughs> it's weird, man. There's been like this massive splurge of, of people doing keto and carnivore. Carnivore is a weird one, especially, but it's like plus fruit and honey, mm-hmm. which is not really carnivore at all. I mean, honey is primarily fructose. Fruit is primarily fructose. Um, I don't really understand why there's been such a push for that, but I don't really consume honey. I don't really consume fruit. I mean, some berries on occasion, that's not really going to have much of a glycemic index, not really going to cause any spike in blood sugar, blood insulin. Um, you know, but like, a, I'm not, you're not going to catch me eating a mango or something like that. Um, so yeah, I, I would keep those, you know, pretty, pretty well non-existent. I mean, it's pretty much just pure sugar. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, if you're looking at the keto diet and you say to yourself, I'm going to stay under 50 grams of carbs per day, right? That's probably a common, let's just say 25 to 50 is probably a common maybe measure that people getting into the keto diet try to reach for. Was that, would that be sound about right? And, you know, if you think of like, let's just say an apple, which uh, is probably, let's just say 15 grams of carbs, 20 grams of carbs for an apple, you know, a person can have an apple and, and probably stay in the same state they were just in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, everybody, especially depending on if they're athletes, if they're, if they have a lot more muscle tissue, they're going to burn through that sugar much more quickly. Uh, I mean, I could probably tolerate hundred grams of carbs a day right. and still maintain some degree of ketosis, but that wouldn't really be boding well for optimizing my ketogenic diet. And that's my goal is to simply optimize my nutritional protocol my lifestyle and my training and performance as an athlete. So if I'm trying to optimize with a ketogenic diet, it doesn't really I mean, me consuming a bunch of fruit, not that fruit and alcohol are the same thing by any means, but me consuming a bunch of fruit is not really going to, you know, improve my level of keto adaptation. It's not really going to improve my performance just as me consuming a bunch of alcohol wouldn't either. So I don't really do those things that don't contribute to my overall betterment. Okay. And then what's thoughts on vegetables? Uh, vegetables. I mean, I don't really notice any performance benefit from vegetables. Um, I like to think of vegetables as a fat delivery system. I can saute vegetables and fat just makes getting fats in easier. Uh, some people tolerate vegetables exceedingly well. Uh, they like the flavor, they like the texture. And if you know, you're one of those people, then I say more power to you have the vegetables still count the total carbohydrate intake because that can add up if you consume them in excess. Um, but a lot of people don't consume vegetables. They don't really have hardly any dietary fiber and they don't really have any digestive issues. So I don't think they're required by any means. Okay. Yeah. And then what would you say? Um, okay. So someone, someone starting out, like you mentioned, whole foods, maybe gradually slowly cut those carbs down, um, to a point of, is there, is there like a sort of a ceiling you'd say for some people or just depends? Yeah. I mean, definitely depends. You, you can kind of play around with it and figure out what your own unique threshold ceiling and floor is. Mm-hmm. Um, me personally, I typically stay, if I'm consuming, you know, 4,000 plus calories, I'm probably going to be closer to 30 or 40 grams of total carbs a day, just simply because it's a lot of trace calories or trace carbs adding up with that amount of food. Right. Uh, but then when I'm in a cut, I'm consuming less total calories. I may be less, you know, single digit grams of total carbohydrate. So really just kind of depends where I'm at on the caloric spectrum. Okay. And, uh, this is a question that comes up quite a bit and I'm curious about your thoughts because of, uh, you do fasting, you exercise in a fasted state. Will fasting cause muscle loss? It can, if you don't do things properly. So fasting by, its, by, by itself will not, but you got to make sure that there's, there's several different levers that you can pull. So if you're in a caloric deficit overall, you're doing extended fasting and you're not training properly, 
then yeah, you will absolutely lose lean muscle tissue, uh, skeletal muscle tissue. However, if you are, uh, you know, if you've got your caloric intake dialed in, if you are, if your hormonal health is solid, if you are training with enough stimuli to, to continue demanding your body to retain that lean muscle tissue and you do a fast, you're likely not going to lose any significant amount of muscle tissue. Yeah. I mean, from my perspective, I've, I do DEXA scans like every, I don't know, four to six months. And, uh, you know, I've been doing fasting for quite a while now. And I mean, I, I still feel like I'm building muscle. Um, I have messed around with, and I'm curious, I know you work out in a fasted state. I've been messing around with having a little bit, something before the workouts and seeing how my performance is. Um, so I think that's, that's a bit of a self-experimentation there. Um, but definitely I think keeping that protein intake at a, at a solid level, is there a protein level that you look for like a gram per pound of body weight? Yeah. I mean, I'll go as, I mean, I've gone as low as 67 grams for a very finite period of time in the end of my cut. Don't really recommend that. I don't think it's necessary, especially with someone with my stats. Um, but then I'll also go as high as, you know, 250 grams at, at times. Um, so I have a pretty broad range with protein as well, but like a good general rule of thumb, uh, is if you're doing one gram of protein per pound of lean mass like that should be ample to ensure that you're not losing any muscle tissue and you can kind of tease that up uh you know as needed based off of where you're at from a caloric load standpoint what your training is like what your preferences are like uh, you know what your satiety factors are like uh, but yeah one gram protein per pound lean mass is just a good general rule of thumb for sure okay i'm just scanning through some of the questions i think we've answered most of them um as, did I, did, did I miss anything that's come up Robert with clients or regarding keto and fasting? No, that... man. I mean, that was pretty, pretty all inclusive. Uh, we covered the gamut there. I feel like, I mean, again, just had, trying to drive home the points. Um, one thing I think I talked quite a bit about is just giving yourself time in a caloric surplus. You know, I kind of touched on that earlier about not doing extended fasting while in a deficit. I feel like there's not near enough people talking about the importance of reverse dieting and spending ample time in a caloric surplus because so much of the media and the information around, out there is just focused on weight loss. Um, but if you're chronically under eating, you're not going to perform at a high level. You're not going to have proper metabolic health, proper hormonal health, uh, and certainly not optimize your performance. So spending time in a caloric surplus is I think very, very important. And when you say caloric surplus, is this something that, again, you got to sort of track maybe for a few weeks, see where your baseline is and then go from there? Yeah. So like for me, for instance, you know, 3000 calories is roughly my maintenance. So if, I, if I'm in a building phase, if I'm trying to, you know, push the needle, I'll tease that up a little bit beyond that 3000 calorie mark. That's going to be different for everybody. Um, but like, for instance, I'll have a lot of female clients that come to me, they're wanting to lose weight and they've been consuming less than a thousand calories for the past six years. Um, which is going to have a depressive effect toward their metabolic rate. Their hormones are likely going to be downregulated. Everything is just not going to be optimized. So giving them time to, to, to reverse diet and basically increase their caloric intake so that we can reset those baseline markers at a healthier range prior to focusing on, you know, weight loss and fat loss again is going to be my recommendation for sure. Okay. Yeah. I, I, uh, so it's probably important to maybe track it for a few weeks, see where you're at as far as your baseline. And then, go from there. When you talk about extended fast, cause this is a common question that comes up. I mean, I do them every so often when you, what's your definition of an extended fast? I mean, I would say probably anything over 24 hours. I mean, I, I've gone as long as I think five and a half, as long as I've ever gone at any one, one time, um, you know, I'll intermittent fast pretty much daily, in which case I'm 
had my last meal around six and then I had my first meal around noon. Um, but anything longer than that, I'll, I don't typically do on a, on a regular basis. Um, I did like a three day fast, three and a half day fast, uh, about a month ago. Um, but you know, I don't really do those too, too often. And when you do, I'm curious, when you do extended fasts, are you just maybe just taking it easy activity wise, or are you still training and stuff? I, I, I can't really take it easy, man. I don't know. How to, <laughs> so I, I keep training. I, I prefer it. You know, I like it. I feel like uh, my body responds well to it. So I, I keep training. Okay. And you're just drinking water and minerals during yeah, that time. Water electrolytes. And that's pretty much all I need, man. Are there, before we wrap it up, are there any like precautions? I know you mentioned sort of the keto flu symptoms. Are there any like other precautions when following a ketogenic diet? Um, not really. I mean, people like are fearful of precautions are fearful of the ketogenic diet. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, fear mongering out there. A lot of people worried about lipid panels and whatnot, but I mean, really and truly any, with any, with any diet, just simply get those panels checked, like, like go and get a routine lab check, see what your lipid panels are doing, see what your hormone levels are doing, see what, see what all these markers are, and then check more than once. Like you might start, you might go get all these labs drawn and then, you know, start a ketogenic diet but if you don't get another set of labs drawn, you won't really know if you're moving in the right direction, or the wrong direction. So uh, getting routine lab panels done, you know, every six months or a year or so, I think would be good advice regardless of the diet you're following. Now, not to go down a whole different road, but are there certain labs that, uh, that you tend to look for, like for your, for your clients, male clients particularly? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, you know, a fully comprehensive lipid panel is good with particle size is good. Um, I'll get like a C-reactive protein. Uh, so I can kind of see what inflammation markers I've got dealing with. Um, and I'll get like a full hormone panel as well, just to make sure that all my hormone markers are in the good, healthy range. And that's pretty much my, you know, you standalone, you know, basic test advice there. But then if you've got specific other, you know, other factors that are, uh, you know, kind of red flags and testing around those, I think would be, you know, key kind of looking at it from an individualized basis for sure. Okay. And who should not, this is a question that comes up. Who should not try intermittent fasting? Um, I think anybody should try it. Man. I mean, there's not really any harm in trying it. Uh, you won't really know if it's for you until you do try it. And I don't really think there's much of a risk uh, unless, unless you have some, some weird, you know, crazy I, issue that the doctor says, Hey, look, don't ever go more than six hours without eating. But that's right. probably not the vast majority of the people out there. Okay. Yeah. And I was going to say, maybe if, you know, you're on certain medications, right. Or yeah. you're obviously pregnant or breastfeeding or someone perhaps that's really underweight. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, if you're, if you're anorexic and you just simply need to eat more in general, it's probably not worthwhile to do extended fasting. Yeah. Um, and I would say perhaps too, if you're fairly young, if you're fairly young in the growth mode, you know, you could, you have plenty of time to get into fasting, yeah. um, you know, as you get a little bit older, maybe over the age of, you know, 16, 17 and plus. Yeah, no, that makes sense for sure. Probably not any benefit for kids doing extended fasting, yeah. but it's kind of crazy, man. You see a lot of kids these days with, you know, type two diabetes already, uh, yeah. and yeah. morbidly obese, you know, in their early teenage years. So it's kind of, it's kind of crazy what's happening with the youth right now. Yeah, it is. And, uh, well, this was good. I, uh, just to sum it up. So I would say that for individuals looking to get into keto and intermittent fasting, it's a great one, two punch, um, really focus on structuring your day around a 
fasting lifestyle that will sort of fit into what works for you, ease your way into, into fasting. And, you know, if, if like I talk about a lot, like almost like a stepladder approach, if, if you want to have your window between noon and six, maybe, and you're so used to eating at 7am, maybe gradually push that back um, until you sort of get acquainted with your new, t- new eating time. And then obviously same thing, I think with like getting into, you know, a keto diet, which is pretty much just almost like a whole foods diet. Um, but gradually minimizing carbs and especially processed carbs and, you know, focusing on, like you said, one ingredient items, um, that expire, <laughs> you, yeah. you, you know, don't av- try to avoid boxes and barcodes as, as much as possible. Um, anything else? That's pretty much it, man. And honestly, just play the long game. Kind of like I was talking about earlier, you know, having that long game mentality towards it. You know, if you do that, you set yourself up for success and then you get excited about seeing the progress over time, as opposed to just a singular moment in time, uh, your likelihood of adhering to it for that longer period of time is going to be significantly improved. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really honing in on why you want to want to do it too, right? Like, you know, do you want to play with your kids or your grandkids or, you know, play the long game. I agree. Figure out really why you want to get into, you know, fasting and keto. And, and when you really know that, that'll sort of drive you, drive you through the times that maybe are a little more difficult, especially when you're just starting out. Yeah. hundred percent, man. Really have a very clear, clear understanding of what your purpose is in the first place and then attacking that with everything you've got. Awesome. All right, Robert ketosavage.com, ketobrick.com. And you have a new book that's been out for a few months, ketogenic bodybuilding, correct? Sure. That's it. Awesome. Well, this was a fun masterclass. Hopefully you got a ton of value from it. And, uh, thanks Robert. I appreciate it. Hey man, always a pleasure. I appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to the get lean, eat clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine. And I appreciate that. Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.